On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Arena. And Arena was raised by a manipulative narcissistic mother. It's a story of brainwashing, trust, suicide, feeling defective, and the long-lasting effects of trauma in adult relationships. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Arena Ember. How are you? I'm fine. Well, thank you for being here today with us, Arena. And if you want to be a guest like Arena is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. At top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on the button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And today you are going to hear Arena's story and a huge content warning for this episode. This episode discusses in detail the suicide of Arena's older sister due to her mother's torment and also the graphic descriptions of Arena's suicidal ideation. This episode also has many graphic descriptions of physical abuse in romantic relationships, and there is a description of sexual assault as well. This episode is not easy to listen to, so there's a big, big content warning, and right before... Um, the part about Arena's sister's suicide, I will put a warning right before that. And that section goes on for about 12, you know, to 14 minutes ish, somewhere around there. So just that's a big, big content warning for you right there. And I just really want to thank Arena for being here with us today. This is not an easy story to tell. And um, I just really want to thank you, Arena. And now I'm going to get out of my way and your way. Arena, the floor is now yours. All right. Thank you for having me. And thank you for letting me um, tell the story. Um, I know there are people with stories that are much worse than mine. Um, I would say that I was very impacted by what happened to me. And I thought maybe I'm a very sensitive person, but I also thought maybe sensitivity is an adaptive response to environment. I, I've started wondering that. Um, I've been so impacted by what happened to me that it really has directed my relationships in a negative way to the point where I feel like a lot of my life has been sort of squandered on unfulfilling relationships. Um, I just wanted to start uh, preface the story because you've mentioned in the past, you know, that a family story is hard to tell. And I think that's because when you're raised by a narcissist, every aspect of your life is affected. So when you tell your story, it sort of has to be about everything. And nobody wants to hear a story about everything um, or tell a story about everything. So I'm trying to keep my story about just a few things, such as um, themes like understanding and believing the truth about what happened to me so that I can stop gaslighting myself and I won't be impacted when others do the same to me. Um, depicting how my responses that helped me survive my childhood 
later were maladaptive and actually harmful to me and to the other people in my life. And becoming aware of how unhealed trauma gets passed down. Um, because I was raised by a narcissist, it's sort of like I was raised in a cult, in an altered reality. And despite having long been out of this childhood, of what I would call captivity and brainwashing, I often found myself insisting to other people about the level of my trauma as though they don't believe me or about how bad my mother was. Um, and I think I still have that defensiveness. And it's partly because I don't believe myself. That's how successful the gaslighting has been. And it's hard for me to tell this story because I've been programmed by her not to tell. And I feel I feel nervous right now just telling because I, I just feel like I'm going to get in trouble. It's just it's just something that she sort of programmed me. Um, another reason it's hard to tell any story, I think, is because memory is fallible and that even in the moment, um, sometimes especially in the moment when things are happening, that we don't know the truth of what's happening, especially when I'm in a relationship with a narcissist. And then the last thing that I thought about in telling the story is that I blocked out a lot of it um, because it happened when I was a little child. Um, I think that my brain was changed by what happened to me, and I know that that impacts my memory. So it's it can be hard to tell a story when your brain has been damaged um, and when you've been lied to your entire life about what happened to you and when there are no other witnesses to corroborate your experience. Um, so some of the things that occurred in my family, I wasn't present. So I am relying on my deductive reasoning and clues that people have given me. So I'll start with the beginning, um, sort of the history of the family. My father's side, uh, we have ancestors from northern Germany. Uh, they were Jews and some Hungarian Jews. The Germans left World War, uh, they left Germany before World War One to avoid having to fight in the war, and they settled in Alabama in the United States, where there were very few Jews. Um, my father grew up as an only child. I never met his parents, but what I've heard is that his mother was maybe an alcoholic, and his father was like a traveling salesman, and that the mother and father had a tempestuous relationship. He is very introverted, withdrawn, studious, my mother's side is mainly from Scotland. I believe that her grandfather was one of 10 brothers on an island off the coast of Scotland, and their father was a Presbyterian minister. My father, uh, my grandfather, my mom's father, came to the U.S. during the Great Depression, and my mother was the first of four children. And according to her, her mother was jealous of the attention that she got from her father. Then, according to my aunt, there was a story in the family that my grandmother knocked my mother's head against a wall when she was an infant, or when she was a baby, um, which, if it's true, is really sad. And it could also be the reason for some of my mother's personality issues. Um, my grandmother once said of my mother to me, she had always been different. Um, my mother told me that 
her mother was very mean to her and that she went to scream therapy about her anger and that her mother, uh, her anger about her mother and that she felt better after that. Um, my mother, unlike my father, is extremely extroverted. Both my mother and father went to Ivy League schools and were probably attracted to one another because they were both very smart and interested in politics. Um, I believe that my mother got pregnant probably the first time she had sex. She said her mother never told her anything about birth control or sexuality or anything. And she told me her mother actually said to her, I don't know why any man would want you. And she often blamed her mother for why she didn't feel good enough about herself as a woman to pick a man better than my father. And I believe they had to get married. So my sister was born and they moved to the East Coast. And I was born about four and a half years later. I believe from what I've been told, my mother left me in my crib to cry a lot. And my aunt told me that she thought my mother let me go too soon. And because of early neglect, I became a needy child, very needy child. So my parents divorced. My father left when I was three. My sister was about eight. He moved about one street away. They proceeded to have a very nasty legal battle over custody. They sent us to therapy right away, and that would be an ongoing theme in our lives. According to my mother, he... He tried to prove that she was crazy, but she still got the bulk of the custody, and we would still see my father every week. Later in my life, my father told me that his doctor told him if he didn't get out of the marriage that he would die. My mother would rage at him and harass him relentlessly, and once he left, she did the same thing to us, to her children. So... I learned to disassociate in response to the abuse. We couldn't escape her, and there's nothing we did to cause the tirades, and there was nothing we could do to stop them. We were sort of like rats wearing shop collars, and it was a very stressful and unsafe environment for us. Um, one story I remember, I, I don't know why certain memories stick out more than others, but the one that is sort of stuck in my head is when I was very young, I made her a puppet for Christmas and I was just hoping that she would really love my gift. I mean, it was, it was a terrible, uh, you know, it was by a little child. I gave her the present and she laughed at it and she said, that isn't very good. And I remember I screamed with pain and rejection and tore up the puppet and ran to my room. And I don't know why that's a really strong memory. Um, I remember that when my mother would scream at us and I would call it really harassment and persecution. I had no idea what she was talking about. She would chase us around the house, barge into our rooms. She would criticize us. She would speak on our behalf. She would humiliate us. And the screaming was always terrible. It, it was often about how she had standards. And as children, we had no idea what standards were. And we were very small children. Um, we were trapped in a car with her. There was no escape. And when she went on her tirades, she would slow down the car and then she would cycle through a range of emotional states. First, she would be raging at us. And then she would talk about how she tried to be a good mother 
And then she would talk about how she was the victim of my father, saying she was just poor old mom trying to do the best. And wasn't she a good mom? And she didn't have enough money to do all the things that my father would do. And then she would accuse us of liking our father better because he let us do whatever we wanted to do. And then it was back to how if we were going to live in her house, we were going to have to have standards. And it just was dizzying. It was relentless. It was using it was upsetting and sometimes then she would sob about how we didn't think she was a good mother i mean we had no idea what she was talking about and then she would say how she was a victim and then of course we would feel sorry for her because we were gentle sweet you know intelligent kids and then sometimes she would just space out but at no time were we getting our emotional needs met you know she parentified us. She violated us. Memory is so weird, but I can't remember if it was my sister or if it was me, but one of us jumped out of a moving car to get her to stop harassing us. And nothing ever worked. You know, nothing ever made her feel remorse. If she feigned remorse, it was so that she could manipulate us through our empathy. And it was about how pitiful she was and how she was a victim, and our dad was terrible, and we were terrible, and we were essentially emotionally starved. Um, so there was another time when I remember I started crying when she was berating us about something. I mean, my sister was very, we were a team, but she handled things differently. She sort of stonewalled my mother. She, you know, she was the first child, so she got the brunt of everything. And so I had to try another tactic. There was nothing that we could do to stop her. So my sister sort of stonewalled her. My sister was quieter. You know, I was the second child. So you have more freedom when you're the second child. And um, there still was nothing that we could do. And I remember my tactic was to cry. And I started crying once when she was berating us about something. And she just wouldn't stop and just wouldn't stop. We were little kids. I, I don't know if I was six or... But I remember, I just remember something sort of clicking in my head and I just kept crying. Like she wouldn't stop screaming. I wouldn't stop crying. And it sort of broke something in me. It's like I, I became a crying addict and that was my technique to try to get her to stop. And I, I, I even cry today. I just, it, it's like something broke in me and I became a crybaby. Um, but nothing worked and nothing would get her to stop. Nothing my sister did, nothing I did. Uh, we were just... You know, and we had my sister and I had this sort of psychic sibling thing going on together. So before she came home, we would always listen for her car and then we'd look at each other and we would run, you know, up to our rooms so that she can start screaming at us. Um, you know, that didn't work. If she if she wanted to scream, she would scream. But we we definitely had that sibling, you know, psychic communication. We didn't know what was going on, so we we weren't at a place where we could talk about what was going on until many years later. Um, but just when she was screaming at us, there was nothing we could do to get her to stop. And she just appeared to not have any empathy, any remorse, any conscience, just screaming at us, yelling at us, berating us, harassing us, tearing us apart, accusing us as children of doing what she was actually doing to us. And if she pretended to be sorry after one of her sessions, it would be to manipulate us to feel sorry for her. And it was never about us. And I know that her behavior changed us on a cellular 
cellular level, like in our bodies. It changed how our brains and our bodies were shaped. And it's really hard to explain this to people who haven't experienced it because people don't understand that some people don't understand that there's no reason for this behavior, that she was just feeding off of our souls, that this behavior doesn't make any sense because it's like, well, what was she trying to achieve? And people who haven't been through this don't understand. And if I tell them, sometimes they want to give her credit she doesn't deserve by saying something like, well, your mother loves you or she meant well, or that was the best she could do. But that isn't, tr- you know, that isn't true. And I know that now and you can hear me getting defensive and insisting here. Um, but I think it's something I imagine only people like your listeners can understand and people who've been through this is that there's no normal reason for how she operated, that there's something wrong with this person, that her goal was something like that normal people can't understand, like destroying the light inside of both of us because she has no light inside of herself. And maybe it sounds like a psychopath, I don't know, but it wasn't, it wasn't like that she couldn't be nice and entertaining and wonderful at times and so charismatic and make us a pancake that we like to eat or, you know, give us some soup with ice in it when we felt sick. And, um, but all that was only crumbs and only crumbs after she inflicted the pain on us, you know, effective torture, you know, that was so bad that we were, you know, desperate for the figurative drop of water, you know, from a dirty rag. And we got used to deprivation. And I know sometimes that can make a person strong, uh, but we were little children and she had no empathy. She had nothing to help us learn to console ourselves. You know, it's just like utter devastation and deprivation and, you know, emotional, um, and it really was incomprehensible. And the, the point I'm making is that the behavior of the personality disordered person just doesn't make logical sense, that there's something totally wrong with them. And that was our mother. So it was just a travesty for us. So back to my sister and I, um, we were nice kids. My sister was the more introverted and shy, and she would withdraw more. She was smarter she would withdraw more and more to deal with my mother. She was really bright. Um, she had darker skin and hair than I did. Um, and, you know, we were half Jewish. And my dad, uh, my father believed that my mother favored me because I was fair-skinned like my mother. I liked to sing and dance. And I think I, I went into La La Land. You know, I would I would escape. I was... Uh, I was um, disconnecting in order you know i was disassociating and living in sort of a fantasy land and um i think my mother liked that because i was sort of like a performing poodle that she could show off and um it may have looked like i was the golden child and i may have been and and i may have been a brat you know because i got more attention and um it was paraded around like you know i was the blonde uh outgoing, happy child, but it didn't turn out that great for me. And I didn't end up a narcissist either, but I I was just doing what I had to do to survive in this dynamic. 
And she was using me to triangulate with my sister and my dad. And it was just a big mess. She put into my head that I wanted to be a Broadway star. So I spent all my time like fantasizing in the basement, singing, dancing. And later I would come to understand that, you know, this isn't my nature at all, but I'm a total introvert as well. And much more comfortable as like a writer than a performer. And I did not feel favored, but I did let my mother control me. I let her do whatever she wanted with me. I was her, I was her puppet. And I, I learned to fawn obediently in order to not be destroyed by her. Um, and that made my sister hate me, I think. Um, I, I mean, I, she, my sister loved me, but the situation caused her to bully me. And that became so bad when I was in first grade that the school we went to considered doing some sort of intervention. You know, but I, I don't blame my sister for that. Um, and I, I know I was bratty. I do blame my mother for triangulating us because she did it with everybody. She did it with her family. Um, so my sister and I knew that there was something wrong with our mother. We knew it intuitively. And I personally felt shame about it, you know, embarrassment, though I, I didn't identify it as such at the time. And at times my mom would love on us saying that we were the best at something, that we were so special, that she was our best friend, our biggest champion, that we were the prettiest, the smartest, most talented, just totally grandiose and overblown and really about her. And then, of course, she would tell people not to tell other people about our family and that this was part of having class. And other times she would say things to me like, oh, you feel like you don't have any friends, don't you? Which in retrospect, I think that was a sick and weird thing to say to a young daughter, you know, especially because I was popular at school. Um. Later in my life, she continued to encourage me to feel bad about myself in different ways and pretty regularly. Um, we did live far away from any family that could be of support or could intervene. We were isolated. We, you know, everybody else lived on the West Coast or lived in the South. Um, my dad had tried to bring in some fam family members. Um, he, he was an only child. Um, so it was cousins, but some of them did live near us at one point and would take care of us when my mother wanted to go out of town or something. But one time my mother dropped an entire stack of plates in front of them to get them to leave the house because she was unhappy about something. Um, and then in regards to her family, she often screamed at me that her family felt I didn't want to have anything to do with them. And feel like that was setting me up to feel estranged from them so that I wouldn't go to them for support. And I think that she worked on them in some other way, um, you know, just manipulation, triangulation. So at a certain point, my mother started referring to herself as the mom. So she would refer to herself in third person as the mom, and she would sign cards that way, the mom. Sometimes she would build up you know, a great gift and act like she was going to give it to me and then say, no, you don't take care of anything. That was a running theme that I don't take care of anything. And the way it impacted me is I came to believe it was true and that I wouldn't be able to take care of anything. I just I wrecked things. Um, she dated many men and would overshare with us about it, how she was hot to trot for this man or that man. You know, when we were 
little kids, preteen. Even she even said this about my sister's boyfriend when my sister was in high school. You know, oblivious to how that was an inappropriate thing to share with us. She did the same thing, sort of violation with money issues. So she was never secure and she would always overshare with us about how she didn't have enough money and it made us stressed out about not having enough money. She didn't want to get fat, so she never had any good food in the house. And even the cat was skinny and was always meowing for food. It was like we were all undernourished, you know, in every way. So was there a difference living with your dad uh, in comparison to your mom? And did that cause any issues at all? When we went to stay with my dad, he didn't rail against my mother. He was kind. He gave us nice things and let us eat dessert and let us watch TV. And then when we went back to my mother's house, he would scream at us and say that we just wanted to stay with him because he let us do whatever we wanted. And if we were going to live with her, we had to live by her standards and not like chickens with our heads cut off. And we could just go live with him if we didn't appreciate how hard it was for her to be a good mother and how she tried to give us everything. And it was so confusing and upsetting. And our dad was very nice, but he was so passive that it seemed like she was right. And she would threaten us and say we should go live with our father after saying so many terrible things about him that it made us fearful of being abandoned by her. And if if we felt love for him, we felt like we were betraying her. So that was difficult. She maintained control over us in a number of ways. She was very smart. And she could often guess at things we had thought or said. And she could read us really well. She could make up stories to manipulate us. She was, like I said, very good at triangulating. Her main method of manipulation that I found, that I figured out later in life, was acting vulnerable. So any idiot with empathy would feel sorry for this lady. And I think that made her chuckle, including in her own family. You know, very empathic, nice people. But, you know, they would fall for it over and over again. What I figured out later in life was what gave her away was just a total lack of empathy. Um, By the way, my mother is very talkative, charismatic, intelligent, sexually driven, grandiose about, for instance, how special her children are. If it serves her to, to, to make somebody else feel bad about their children or about how wealthy her friends are, about how she went to an Ivy League school, you know, whatever is going to make you feel worse and smaller about yourself or your life. Um, But she can also lavish praise on on a stranger and make quite an impression, but is also very provocative and good at pinpointing some topic like immigration or poverty or politics that is specifically upsetting to you. And she can hone in on it and loves to get like an argument going where she can express her opinions and show how clever she is. So for everyone listening right now, this is just a warning that a section is about to begin that discusses the uh, death, the suicide of Arena's sister. And it is around, you know, 12 to 14 minutes long, 14 minutes to be safe, uh, starting right here. 
And it also, in this section, discusses uh, sexual assault as well. So just a content warning right here that is about to begin. Back to the situation with my sister. By the time my sister was 13, apparently she was already suicidal. And I found that out later. When she was 14 or 16, I can't remember which, they sent her away. They didn't tell me anything about it until after it happened. They sent her to a mental hospital on the East Coast. This is where I see a long history of scapegoating by my mother, if that's the right word. Even though she was doing, she was the one doing all the damage to us, she always projected that onto others, saying that, you know, my father victimized her, or there's something wrong with my sister, um, or there's an aunt of my father's, there's something wrong with. So she was trying to create a story that mental illness came from my father's side of the family. And that's how there came to be something wrong with my sister. And she always said it like, poor sister, and developed uh, or delivered this false-seeming narrative, but it worked. Who wouldn't feel sorry for a suicidal teenager? But the true story is that it was depressing to have a mother who was mean, hated her children, and who did not want them to thrive. I think it drove my sister madness because we were trying to love and be loved by this erratic and sadistic person who mainly rejected us. And there's some terrible, you know, intermittent reinforcement here. You know, she created a really intractable trauma bond. I really, I really feel that because we were starved and because she would give us crumbs sometimes and we were desperate for those crumbs of, of affection. After my sister was sent away, or after she was away at the institution and later at a boarding school for some years, um, my mother's attention started to turn to me more and more, which was not a good thing. Um, I didn't have that buffer of my sister. You know, I'd been her perfect little brat, and I'd survived in the shadow of my sister. You know, my sister was the one that was identified as there being something wrong with. But once they shipped her away, this whole spotlight was on me, and I was the solo object of my mother's abnormal rages and persecution. I didn't have my sister there anymore. Protect me. Sorry. And as I became a teenager, I suddenly became the one that there was something wrong with. Um, I'd been a good kid, but she projected this bad girl thing onto me, and we just fought and fought, and I had started to fight it back because I was a teenager. And, you know, nothing of what she said made any sense. And you can't just let somebody continue to abuse you indefinitely. I mean, it's like you're a cornered animal. You have to fight your way out. Um, Most of the time, I had no idea what she was talking about. And I knew she was weird and not making sense. But her harassment was just so relentless. I guess that what happened to both my sister and me is that we were trying to individuate from her like children do, and my mother couldn't have that. Uh, I think she accused me of being so bad so often that it kind of turned me bad. For instance, I started smoking intentionally. I didn't like it, but I just made myself do it. Uh, but of course, that mainly hurt me. So by the time my sister was 20 years old, my mother was just really attacking me verbally so much that I was being advised by the headmaster of my high school that I should get out of the house. And it was decided that I should go to boarding school. My mother and father 
but that summer, my sister killed herself. We had been enrolled at uh, a university and she was studying psychobiology, I assume, to understand her own depression and how her brain worked. But she got too depressed to stay in school. And she made summer plans that fell through. You know, she struggled with her weight and she was so introverted. Plus, she was living in my mother's house, which was obviously not healthy for her. She had enrolled herself at a study um, at NIH, the National Institutes of Health. It was testing early tricyclic medications, you know, antidepressants. But the medication side effect made her more depressed. And she acted, asked the doctor for more and they gave them to her. And she took them all. Um, and my father came to pick me up at summer camp. And before I had time to grieve at all, I was sent to boarding school. So my life just spiraled after that. Um, I didn't have any emotional support. You know, my father, who was a kind man, he's just withdrawn and just wasn't there at all. And then my mother doesn't, you know, everything is about her needing supply. Um, and we had no family around. My parents were divorced and this was my only sibling. So this part of the story is so sad to me. I have to be careful not to fall into the sorrow. You know, I feel very alone in all the events that occurred. Um, not only did I not have a family, a sister or any close friends or family from my childhood, I, I felt just so alone, like homeless. Sorry. Um, and there's some shame from having the family member die of suicide. You know, this was 30 years ago or more. And um, back then, people didn't talk about suicide as much. I mean, I don't know if they, if they do today, but they didn't reach out much, I think, because it was too shameful. And it seemed like a sure sign that there's something wrong with the person who did, did it. And so maybe that worked for my mother's narrative. Um, and I just want to say, I really understand how unmet emotional needs, especially after being abused by a parent, it can lead to mental illness, like unresolved emotional pain. I can really see how that can make you lose your mind. Um, my dad had a very passive way of dealing with me and really wasn't able to be there fully emotionally. You know, I was bereft and my dad sent me away. You know, they just, both of them just kept sending both of their children away. Um, I needed emotional healing and support. And I don't, I don't think my dad is a bad person. He's just somehow very withdrawn. And if I look at his family history and culture, you know, especially if he had an alcoholic raging parent at home as a little boy, you know, and especially if he was codependent or alcoholic himself or both. So there are a lot of events that, that happened after that. I'm just going to sort of list them um, because it's, it's too much. You know, the story isn't about this, this time, but basically I tried to kill myself at boarding school. They sent me to a psychiatric institute. They sent me to a school. I dropped out. I got my GED. My dad sent me to Europe for a month. I went to Europe with a with a friend but I decided to go travel alone 
but I got robbed, I got molested, and I got raped by various people, and mostly France, and also a bit in Italy, um, which for years I thought didn't impact me because I think I was already so disassociated from the abuse from my mother that I just almost wasn't inside my body. Um, but I, I, I'm sure that's not true. Um, when I got back to my dad's house, I felt he was trying to control me. I went a little, I went wild and ran away and took his car. And while he was gone, I'd let these punk rockers um, have a party in his house. I wasn't trying to destroy his house, but I just let these people in and they, they trashed it. I, I think that I, I was nihilistic. Maybe I was angry at him about how he hadn't protected me emotionally and you know, sent me to Europe where I got victimized all over Europe. Um, I did smoke some PCP. I was like 17 or, or so. And, uh, for a week, I think I smoked some PCP, which is, you know, not, not great, um, for mental health. And I think it, it caused me to be even more disassociated. And my father sent, found me and sent me to another institution. And I ran away from that. I was often suicidal. I ran, uh, I hitchhiked to New York. I stayed with a friend who had, whose father had an empty apartment. Um, I, we had to leave that because it was rented out. And his mother found me a, a place to stay. This lady went to Bali for a month and I got to stay at her place. And I accidentally set her sofa on fire. I was probably psychotic at the time. Eventually, I hitchhiked back to my mother's house. And by the way, during many of this, during this time, many men just continued to try to be with me or take advantage of me. And I just didn't have any boundaries. And just to paint the picture, I was overweight. I was mentally ill. I was hasty based. I had chopped off most of my hair. I mean, I looked like a, you know, mental patient. Um, and the men still came, you know, there were still men coming after me to, 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 to get something from me. When I got back to my mother's house, she seemed suspicious of me. She made me stay in the basement. You know, I was, I was still looking to get support and love from her, but I feel like she helped foster my mental illness. Um, she was very cruel and rejecting and told me she understood if I had to go, which I took to mean go kill yourself like your sister. Um, I was, I, I felt some terrible pressure in my body. And so I called the paramedics to come take blood from me and told them I was thinking of cutting my neck to let some of the blood out. Um, and it's true. I was, I was crazy. I'd lost my mind, but I knew it, um, which I think is, I think sometimes people know it and some people don't. Um, but I really feel that the psychosis was from emotional trauma as well as the drugs that I had done. So they took me to another institution. They gave me meds and I went to live with my father. Once I got the, they gave me antipsychotics and I started coming back to earth. Um, and I think I'd finally learned that it's not safe to live with my mother. You know, my poor sister never learned. And sometimes I look at my sister's suicide as an act of anger against my mother and I look at it like she did it to protect me you know and it still took me so long to learn you know and to, to 
to understand that my mother was not safe. Um, you know, once I saw, once I understood that, once I saw it as my sister doing that to get out of her grip, that helped me to understand that my mother was a dangerous person who had abused us. Because, you know, she always told us, I'm your friend. I'm your friend. So it's hard to, it's just so hard to overcome that brainwashing. You know, the thing that really destroyed us and that I'm still struggling to understand is that I think it drove us crazy because we believe, like everybody else, because we had empathy that she did mean well and she did love us. But today as an adult, you know, when I'm old now, I don't believe that. I believe that she's a sadist and she's sick and, yes, evil person. And that maybe some terrible things were done to her, yes, but she didn't do anything to heal herself and she let that evil come through her to her children and to anybody else who had squishy boundaries. So, you know, we couldn't, I couldn't have boundaries as a child or she would have destroyed me like, like my sister. So, um, what I struggle with understanding and, and explaining to people is that my sister and I were abused by somebody we love, somebody who told us she loved us, but really wanted to cause us harm, you know, inexplicably. And the that itself is so profoundly evil and that that would cause a person to lose their mind if they have empathy because it doesn't make sense. And that the story that she told everybody is that there was something wrong with us. And even we believed it. You know, everybody believed it. And so I can't even be in contact with her family because who am I now that I'm recovered and outside of that family? And so one of the false beliefs I have that I've had to find in myself and, and remove, surgically remove, is that I'm not normal and that there's something wrong with me because this is not true. What was done to me and my sister, and I have to speak for her because she's not here to speak for herself, was not normal. But I responded to an abnormal situation, and I guess I got I got stuck pretty far out there. But I wonder sometimes why am I spending so much of my life trying to prove to other people how bad my mother was? And I think it's because I had to bond with her to survive my childhood. I don't order to do that I had to believe she was okay I had to believe the lies that she told me and I think it's really difficult to unbrainwash myself I'm like a, a program zombie and it showed up in my life in very destructive ways you know in my childhood my will my autonomy my agency was taken from me by my mother I had to become her slave so that was my childhood and then there's the story about the way my childhood programming has shown up in my adult life. After I, I left the city that I grew up in and I left my parents, um, I still had a ton of symptoms that undermined my life. And even though I'd left my parents, they still loomed so large at me, you know, for decades. And I continued to seek what I needed, but never got from them and would continue to try to extract that from others who crossed my path, you know, strangers, boyfriends, whoever. I had PTSD, which 
I didn't realize, you know, for years, and I later determined it to be CPTSD, which I know is not in the DSM-5 or whatever, but that's, that's what I identify myself as having. And I was very easily triggered for, you know, for decades by criticism, by shouting, by perceived rejection, by inner triggers. And I was so often disassociated and in grief that I was often suicidal, though mostly passive ideation, like, why am I still alive? Maybe I should be dead. You know, occasionally uh, specific active ideation, but but mostly passive ideation and just, you know, why, why am I alive? Just so, in so much pain. And once I was triggered, I would spend days sometimes sobbing inconsolably, you know, just saying, kill me or, and you know, I went through so much therapy. Sometimes it was funded by my mother. Um, not only did it not help, but I think sometimes made me worse. Um, I would leave therapy crying inconsolably, wondering what I was doing to myself. Like, why am I doing this? Um, I think the therapist I saw for many years didn't understand narcissistic abuse. Um, I did try EMDR years ago, uh, but perhaps the person didn't do it the right way for me. It didn't help. Um, I did hear on your Q&A podcast that it it can work if you don't have the person re- relive their trauma, but just have them recall it. But in any case, um, mine seemed too deeply inset. And I think I also perceived my therapist as having too cozy of a relationship with my mother, and that didn't help me trust my therapist at all. And so I... My mother was still in my life and because I still believed that she was my friend. And so I would share things with her and she would encourage me to feel bad about myself. I didn't recognize it for years. It really just, she just, it just kept programming ingrained in me and it kept me enslaved to her emotionally. Um, Meanwhile, I sought out partners who reflected what I grew up with. So I either had avoidant partners or abusive ones. And inevitably, my triggers got set. Uh, got, and the whole thing was just a vicious cycle. In abusive relationships, I would deny that I was the sort of person who allowed themselves to be abused. And I would stay and fight to not be abused and then try to change the person as well because they're abusive and you know they should work to not be abusive, which, of course, never worked. And not only did it work, but I think I inflicted damage on these people as well by fighting with them and also codependently trying to call them. Um, I, I got into so many terrible relationships and I've been so confused and I was a part of it. And it started so early in my life because I had to allow my mother to violate me in order to survive. And I think I also came to associate being violated with being loved. I believe I was actually wired to brave being violated. And and then because I didn't have any boundaries, because I wasn't it wasn't safe for me to have boundaries in my home, I wasn't safe with guys. Um and it started when I was I mean it probably started earlier, but I when I was fourteen, um I lost my virginity and it was, you know, obviously statutory rape, but it also just was non consensual. You know, I was fooling around with him, but he was just, you know, as an operator and he had this setup. I'm not going to go into that, but I I didn't have time to object, you know, but also I didn't care about myself. You know, it was already completely 
disassociated. Um, one of the best examples uh, of how how dysfunctional I was in relationships is um, in my twenties. I had been I'd been in art school, and I had the last guy I'd been with was a, sort of an addict, an alcoholic who wore a suit and carried a briefcase at art school, a red faced guy, and he really was homeless and I was, I felt sorry for him and letting him stay with me, but he did something like kiss me and I didn't want to kiss him. And I set a boundary with him and he shoved me and spit on me. So I made him leave and, um, you know, I'd just been trying to be nice to him. So I was relieved when I went to a party and I met this GQ looking guy, um, who was wearing all white at a party and wasn't drinking at all. And I was, I was like, um, you know, oh, this guy is, you know, central relief after this alcoholic guy. And, and this guy, um, he was wearing all white. It was like a, a sweatsuit, but it was like it's all white sweatsuit. He's wearing sneakers. He just looked so wholesome and he was so good looking. And he, it was a little weird. He talked sort of slow and in a baby talk way, but he just seemed so clean looking compared to the last guy. So we went out and he was telling me he loved me really soon and that we were going to grow old together, I think on the second date or something like that. Um, he did drive one of those Grateful Dead VW vans and that was a red flag to me, but I was like, don't be judgmental. Then we were maybe on the third date and we went to a bar and I had a drink, but he didn't. And I felt bad, like maybe he was missing out. I didn't know about alcoholism at that time. So I, I asked him, did he want a drink? And he hesitated and he hesitated. And then he said, yes. And then he was just drinking all night and going crazy. And it was sort of fun, but it was also out of control. And all this, all of this with him happened on a really accelerated timeline. But that night or another night like that, he wet my bed. He got me pregnant. So that wasn't great. And then some morning, I don't know if it was that morning or the next morning, we got in an argument. I was naked and uh, it just escalated and he threw me across the room. He was really strong. Um, so I was naked and he threw me across the room and I was so sad about it, you know, that he did this. And I felt sorry for him. Um, I talked to his sister, you know, this really sweet, passive, demure person. And she told me that, that their father had been very abusive to their mother and that the dad would take the boy, my boyfriend into the backyard and get him drunk and high when he was 11. So I saw that he had been abused. I felt sorry for him. And I made an excuse for him that it wasn't his fault, that he had anger issues, that he had attacked me because he'd been abused. And I thought, maybe if we both decided to walk away the next time, instead of letting it escalate, then we could let it diffuse and this wouldn't happen again. And his sister said, oh yeah, that sounds like a good idea. But he didn't say, he wasn't a part of this conversation. So before I knew it, um, I agreed to go on a trip with him so we could do some, he could do a crazy job in the Gulf of Mexico. And I thought I could work on a school project during spring break and go with him and keep him company while he went to get this job. Um, I suspect now he had no idea how to get this kind of job, a very dangerous job working on like an oil rig or something like that. We went on the trip. I was the passenger and I poured coffee for him while he was driving, but I accidentally got some on his shirt. I thought was not a big deal, but he said very seriously, clean it off. And I tried to joke, you know, like, do you, you know, 
this isn't so serious. But he got really angry and very demanding and said it again. And I can't remember, but it just turned into him shouting at me. And I was trying not to accept that treatment because it's not okay for to let somebody treat you that way. And it just escalated. And so I told him, stop the car so we can get away from each other. And he would not stop. And he kept shouting. And I remember I opened the glove box. I don't know why, if I knew there was something in there or not, but I saw an object in there and it was a knife and I touched it and he just backhanded me uh, and I blacked out. I've never, I don't remember, nobody's ever done that to me before. And I, I came to and realized what had happened. And I reached to the, for his ignition and turned the car off and just opened the door and ran. And we were in the desert. It was um, in the California desert. And I had to get back in the car because all my things were there and we were in the desert and there was nobody around. Um, so I got into the back of the van and eventually he had to stop for gas. I told him I had to use the bathroom. And when I went, I took my things with me. Before I got to the car, the workers at the station saw me with a fat lip and I was crying and they came up to me and said, are you okay? And I just stood there and more of them came and they said, are you okay? And I said, no. And I just shook my head and they gathered around me to protect me from this guy. He drove around the station with the van door open, yelling my name and saying, get in the car, get in the car. But the men just stood around me, protecting me. And then the amazing owner of the station gave me a ride to the airport. And luckily I had a credit card so I could get a flight home. And when I got home, two things happened. I told my dad and he said, Rena, next time, please pick somebody better, which was a shockingly unsupportive thing to me and lacking in empathy, um, just a disconnect. And then I got a collect call from prison and it was the guy. I didn't take the call. And by the way, this guy found me recently online and, and sent me a message, which was so creepy. Um, and I think he's a total psychopath. Um, but that's a really good example of how my childhood of being groomed by a narcissist, the personal supply, really put me in a position where I was a danger to myself and the world. I mean, I actually decided unilaterally that if we got into an argument that we would decide to both walk away. He never agreed to that. And logically, it doesn't make any sense. And every time I allowed somebody to violate me like this, I think it made me feel ashamed for letting somebody treat me that way. But maybe also I got some kind of weird high from it, you know, because that's how I understood love is letting my mother violate me. Um, you know, I'm one of those story. I'm one of those stories. You know, if I told you every single relationship I've been in, how it's just bad, 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 bad. Where if somebody was listening to it, we didn't understand uh, the setup. That somebody would say, "Well, it's it's her fault." You know, what is she getting out of it? Because it happened so many times, um, and they don't understand that this is the conditioning of having been raised by a narcissist. That my survival required me to bond with somebody who violated me and when that happens it's incredibly difficult to change so another just it just went on and on I mean not every man who was dangerous or bad for me um you know physically assaulted me but just really bad stuff where they did violate me um you know it was a violation so for instance music producer 
who I was paying and began sleeping with, who then demanded that I be in an open relationship with him. And I'd be willing to go to sex parties because his last wife, you know, was wouldn't do things like that and demanded that I stop seeing the other person I had a connection with, you know, in this open relationship that he said we had to have. And, um, you know, who, who went to Thailand with a, a couple and he was sleeping with both of them and slept with his roommate and then confronted me and said he wasn't, he felt like I wasn't okay with it. And, you know, I'm really shocked in retrospect by how controlling this person was um, and by how I said yes to all his demands. After him, there was another guy who was abusive physically, socially, financially, but was actually able to tolerate my my codependence and PTSD. So I don't know, there were positives in that. So additional partners, I've had addicts, mentally ill people, emotionally abusive people. And I really have learned that it's not just them doing it to me, that I have to change myself because I'm participating, that I'm trying to help them instead of helping myself. Um, that it's really hard having been raised by my mother because she lied so much and I had no choice to, to believe her. So I have a really hard time figuring out who is safe for me. You know, I recognize abusive and mentally ill people almost immediately. And I think I'm riveted by them, awning over them completely as a messed up defense. And it's so hard to unwire myself since what I did for survival, you know, it's what I did for survival. Um, you know, as early as infancy, I guess. So my mother, throughout all these relationships, my mother was still in my life and was also not helpful or supportive at all. You know, one man I lived with for years picked me up by the neck and threw me on the bathroom floor. And another time he dragged, and I was trying to help him, you know, oh, let me help you. Uh, another time he dragged me through the house while smothering me as I clawed at the walls, trying to stop him from throwing me down on the bed. Um, I had to refinance the house and put it in my name because his credit score was too low. I paid his taxes with the equity from the house. You know, I probably still haven't recovered from the financial uh, distress owning that house with him caused. Um, after he assaulted me the second time, I sent him to jail and he left me paying the whole mortgage. When I called my mother in the middle of all this, the first thing she said to me was, you know, I can't help you, Irina. You know, I wasn't even asking for money. I was just looking for moral support. You know, like a, a mother who was truly a friend to their child would provide. Um, later in my life, 10 years or more past that event, every time I called my mother, she um, she would begin the conversation with, Irina, you sound better in such a condescending tone. You know, I finally realized that she was gaslighting me and it's so sick that a mother would do that to want their child to feel bad about themselves. I can feel so sorry for myself and what I've been through sometimes. Um, and I feel as though my life has been stolen. I feel like I can't love normally and I'll never know a good relationship. I feel starved for emotional connection most of the time. Um, but if I get some of it, I can barely take any because I'm so used to not getting any. I just, it's its like I myself have become like a withered and withdrawn person. And and if I, if I have emotional connection in front of me, I kind of don't know what to do with it. 
And I feel sometimes like I'm living a sort of a half life, kind of stunted and frozen, but I keep working on myself and I'm sharing this to maybe help somebody and also maybe to feel a bit more connected myself. Uh, Part of why I wanted to tell this story is because I feel like I've been hiding myself. Uh, There's shame when you come from an abusive home, I think. My mother always told me not to tell people about our family, and I listened to her as though she was ever giving me selfless advice. And that really harmed me and kept me isolated, and it kept me addicted to her. I was always waiting for her to be different, for her to give me the love and attention that I was deprived of for my whole life. And I finally gave up once I started to become educated about personality disorders. I was clear that she would never change and that she had no remorse and that she only pretended to have a conscience. I mean, she was so clever. She did it very well. So it's very hard to to come to that conclusion because she can act so different than what I believe her true nature is. Um, she believes that she's better than everybody half the time and then worse than others half the time. She would canvas for sympathy, trying to make herself seem pathetic. Um, she would often surround herself with spineless codependents. And of course, they lack boundaries and had the greatest empathy. So they would fall for her pitiful act again and again. And then her closest circle was flying monkeys, either narcissists themselves or socially challenged, be controlled. I myself was one of the spineless codependents, and I believe that my codependency and inability to stand up for myself, my tendency to allow or even invite people to violate me, that's all just how I coped with and survived my childhood. It's how it set me up on a cellular level to fawn over unstable, abusive, and abnormal people. I took this fawning codependency into all my relationships, you know, even just with friends. And so that when a partner or a friend or even a colleague violated my boundaries, I felt bad for them. And I thought I could help them, you know, instead of standing up for myself, instead of having boundaries, instead of, you know, taking control of my own life. I said, oh, if only I could help them, then they wouldn't abuse me. You know, the poor abusive people, I feel so sorry for them. Um, And this has been my orientation in the world, and it has such a strong hold in me. I've never created boundaries for myself. I'm like somebody without any skin. And I just kept wondering for so long, why do I keep doing the same things over and over? Why do I keep getting in the same kinds of relationships over and over? And I feel like I've been addicted to my trauma and only through trying every single remedy have I been relieved of my addiction. Um, I realize now that I have a false core belief that there's something wrong with me. I think my mother projected this onto me and I internalized it. But the truth is there's something wrong with her. I understand now that I believed it about myself, that I'm not normal or that I'm abnormal. And I believed it physically, mentally, emotionally, socially, financially, spiritually. But this came from my mother. It was her brainwashing and my learned compliance, which I guess is functionally codependency. I had to allow her to control me 
it. It's not just that I became used to being treated that way. That would be easy to quit. It's that my cells understand, even though it's no longer the case, that if I'm going to survive, I have to allow others to control me. I think another one of the reasons I wanted to share my story is because it's just so difficult to recover from the brainwashing one endures as the child of a narcissist. You know, the parent is a pathological liar and they're not capable of love or empathy. I feel like they're not even a real person. They're like AI. You know, they're capable of computing probable human behavior and thought, but they're not capable of inner self-assessment. So they're not human. No, that's totally abnormal. What mother doesn't feel for her children? What mother sees her children as objects? What mother wants her children to be disabled and unable to individuate? What mother encourages her children to feel bad about themselves, to be needy, to be deprived? It's totally sick. And what's so completely evil about what my mother did is that she projected her abnormality onto her children. She led us to believe and encouraged us to believe, brainwashed us to believe that there was something wrong with us. And we had to accept it or she would destroy us and abandon us. And she did destroy my sister in the end. I survived and I have to tell this story for myself and for my sister because she can't tell the story. There's no witness left. I'm the only one. And it's been so difficult because I have to keep reminding myself of what happened and how bad she really is. She's not a human. I have to tell myself that. She's some sort of abnormality, a mutation, not a superior being as she has to tell herself in order to survive the desolation inside herself of not being able to love or connect with any, any being, you know, being soulless. So I wanted to tell my story because it's taken me so long to understand that as a consequence of what happened to me, I've lived out my life almost as though it was predetermined in this sort of helpless way. So I've mostly stopped dating. I, I did stop contact with my mother during the pandemic. You know, I've been through all kinds of therapy. I've contacted people off podcasts and stuff I found online. I've, I've watched, I've read all this stuff. I've watched YouTube videos, you know, like Gabor Mate and Joe Dispenza, like Richard Brandon. And of course, Narcissist Apocalypse and shows like The Addicted Mind. I even was listening to Recovery Elevator. Um, and I do goal setting and I do meditations like meta meditation. Um, I've been in a ketamine program for seven years through my medical provider. Um, it's almost resolved my complex PTSD. It's like microdosing. Um I got into it after my last relationship, you know, like 10 years ago where it was just so volatile and he was so avoidant and he rejected me sexually and it just hurt me so badly and the fights were so terrible. At one point I just said, I have to change. I have to change myself. So I got into the ketamine program. It's this weight-based dosing. Um, it's a, it's a disassociative and it, it creates a neuroplastic state in your brain. So I do meditations with it and try to rewire my brain and orient myself towards what feels good. And the people who feel good for me, it's sort of like feeling in the dark. Um, I've tried some psychedelic medicine too. 
So that's my story. And, you know, you asked me, what do I want to tell the listeners? It's hard for people to to internalize this by me telling them that, but um, I wanted to say that it's not personal. No matter how heinous the acts that were done to you, that there's something wrong with that person. And also that each of us is responsible uh, for and capable of our own healing, that our brains are changeable and neuroplastic, and that we can intentionally change ourselves with, you know, with work and intention. And that whatever we had to do to survive our situation, whoever we had to become, whatever responses have become ingrained on a cellular level, whatever survival responses that are now maladaptive and ruining our lives, we don't have to remain stuck. I'm going to talk about evil a little bit, even though I'm not religious, but I've come to understand evil in the in a way through through my recovery. I I feel like many of us in this world are innocent beings who have been touched by evil, and we just want others to understand it. But unfortunately, unless others have had their own experience and are aware of it, I don't know if they can understand. I feel like evil maybe gets handed down, like what was done to our ancestors that hasn't been healed, gets passed along to us and through us. Um, And that some of us with more empathy than others, we can feel so sorry for the people who experienced evil and are unhealed that we don't see when it's being passed on to us, that it isn't ours. We don't have to carry it. Um, And I'm not sure that having a ton of empathy isn't something that empaths develop as a survival mechanism, you know, or to go along with a super fawning response to help us attach a person who's not normal or not safe. You know, I think we're all plastic or malleable unless our brains are damaged. And if we're healthy, we adapt to our environments. You know, if my grandmother hit my mother's head against a wall because she was crying too much as the first baby and she was overwhelmed, you know, it's so sad that anybody would do that to a helpless infant. And what happened to my grandmother that she would ever do such a thing? You know, it's so sad. And I feel sorry for both of them. But my sadness for these people has not helped me to heal from the damage done to me, I think it has maybe even made me vulnerable to being damaged by it. You know, my sadness makes me vulnerable. If I had lacked empathy, perhaps I wouldn't have sustained so much damage. I feel like maybe evil gets passed on and it's been carried in my own heart and in my cells like a tumor, you know, interwoven in its host. I mean, metaphoric cancer, although... I feel like this sort of psychic and emotional injury can cause physical damage. You know, I feel it every day in my body and in my heart and in my being. Um, I think I'm using the cancer metaphor because the way I see it, evil is a darkness that can spread, but we don't really know where it comes from. And it isn't really contagious. You know, maybe it comes from stress and emotions being suppressed, and maybe evil can be released by expressing it or expression and bringing what's in the darkness out into the light by sharing. And that's what I'm trying to do. 
Um, and in the end, I don't know if I really want to say this. Um, I, I, I love my mother somehow. Um, maybe, maybe all this is just me having, you know, being a crybaby with a broken heart, but I don't have my mother in my life. Um, even though I pity her and I have sympathy for her, she's just too dangerous for me. Um, she encourages me to feel bad about myself and to allow others to control me while also criticizing me for doing those things. Um, and my programming to be, to function as helpless and a victim who invites people to control and abuse me is just too powerful. Um, I feel like it gets activated when I'm near her or if I talk to her. So I don't talk to her and I don't talk to anybody who talks to her because I feel like they can, she can get to me through them. I do feel sorry for her and I feel sorry for them. Um, but I have to protect myself and I have to put myself first. And so, you know, um, being able to share, um, I think is one of the things that has helped me to stay healthy. Um, you know, I wrote songs for like 20 years. I mean, it didn't, didn't go anywhere, but, um, I could, I was, I wrote because I had to, um, and writing has been a good way for me to, you know, express myself and, that's my story so first of all just a really big thank you arena for being here with us today it's not an easy thing you did today it's not an easy story to tell and i'm happy you're here to tell your story and share your story for everyone to learn from but also for you to just tell for yourself and to voice everything out loud. And I really can't thank you enough for sharing your story today and being so clear and, you know, really going through the depth of your feelings, which is not an easy thing to do at all. And you did it for everyone in the community. And, you know, you're going to help so many people today by sharing your story and validating their experiences as well. So just a really big thank you from myself and everyone out there from the bottom of my heart. Just a really big thank you. And we're all giving you a big hug right now. So just a, again, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. And I wanted to say again, thank you for your compassion and for you know, holding a space for people and for, for letting so many people tell their story. And I just want to say also, um, you know, thank you to all the people. I have so much compassion for all the people who've been on your show and all the people who are listening. Um, you know, I just, I'm so sorry, you know, for the people who are still going through, you know, suffering, um, and yeah, I just, I just, uh, I hope everybody can heal. So thank you once again for being our guest today. And if you want to be a guest, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. 
Also at our website, we have our very own safe social network, our own support group. So if you want to join our support group, go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says support group. When you click on that button, it takes you to our support group page. And there you'll see that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We also have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need from survivors just like you. And there's a wonderful group of people on there. And you can share your experiences and make friends as well. So if you need support, join our support group today. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. At DomesticShelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you are dealing with. They have every phone number and email address and web address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small the town you are in. DomesticShelters.org has there. It is a wonderful free resource and a wonderful organization. So if you need extra support, please do go to DomesticShelters.org. And we here at Narcissist Apocalypse have a new friend to the show, and they are an organization called Shelter Movers, and they can be reached at sheltermovers.com, and Shelter Movers helps survivors of domestic violence transition to a better and safer life. And it is a volunteer organization, a donor-supported charitable organization as well, and what they do is they coordinate moves for people who are getting out of domestic violence. It is an interesting part of the domestic violence escape process, and they help you get to safety, and they also help you get your things out of your home and into storage all of your belongings into storage, and they can do this for your pets and livestock too. It is a wonderful organization. It is currently in Canada and hoping to move into the United States. So if you need help from them or you just want to donate to them, please go to sheltermovers.com. And that is it for today's episode. So for myself and Arena, we hope you have a good night. <laughs>